Hello and welcome to the Jubitate Podcast. Your home for underreported topics of the day. Traversing the world, searching for sanity. All right, welcome to the Dubitate Podcast. I'd like to welcome our guest, Adam Zagoria, who writes for the New York Times, Forbes, and Zag's blog. That's Z-A-G-S-B-L-O-G. Look him up. Adam's sports writing is featured prominently in those and other publications, and he's also a teammate of mine on some recent Ultimate Teams. Welcome, Adam. Great to be with you, Saj. How you doing today, buddy? I'm doing well. We, we definitely want to talk sports today, Adam. And, um, yeah. you know, as it seems, everything relates somehow to the pandemic. So we'll, we'll get to the sports in just a second. But I wanted to uh, start off by asking how you're doing as you have, um, you know, some firsthand experience with COVID-19 and you had a couple of rough weeks there. Yeah, um, I mean, long story short, Sanj, I was in, you know, New York City in March when, you know, the pandemic was really bad. I was at Madison Square Garden a couple of days in mid-March for the Big East tournament and for um, a concert, an Allman Brothers uh, tribute concert. And then I was supposed to go back to the garden for a third day in a row on March 12th because I was covering Seton Hall for the the Star Ledger in New Jersey. And long story short, I just kind of had a gut feeling that uh, I didn't really want to go back to the garden for a third day. I didn't feel sick yet, but I I just felt a little like kind of tempting fate. Um, So I sort of actually told my editor that Thursday that I was a little uncomfortable about going. He said, hey, if you want to write the game off television, you can, um, which is which was nice of him because journalists are, you know, you're, you're supposed to go live to the event. Uh, but I was sort of secretly hoping the games would be canceled. And anyway, that Thursday, March 12th, they ended up canceling the Big East tournament. So I didn't have to go back. Um, and then that Friday, they canceled the, the whole NCAA tournament, which obviously, you know, ended the college careers of a lot of kids I cover and, and players that we all follow. Um, and then my family and I came down here to the Jersey shore that Friday. And within about a week, I started getting like headaches and a really bad cough and a fever. Um, and you know, long story short, I, I tested positive on like March 4th, you know, it was a rough couple of weeks. It's scary. Cause you don't know, you know, it was early. You don't know how bad it's going to be, how bad it's going to get. Um, and within a couple of weeks, you know, within a week or so I had tested positive. I was able to get a test down here. Um, after about a week or two, my symptoms went away and I started to feel better. And now here we are in May and I've tested positive for antibodies. So, you know, I'm kind of hoping I'm immune. The symptoms came on pretty rapidly. I mean, you said you had some sort of, you know, I don't know, premonition, something going on there that it wasn't safe to go back for that third day. But, uh, and you weren't feeling it then yet, but what, did everything just happen over like a 24 hour period or something? Well, I mean, I think what they say, you know, from everything I've heard is it takes, I don't know, generally about a week for the seven to 14 days, maybe, or several days to a week or two for the symptoms to manifest. So, um, you know, look, I live in New York City, as you know, you know, I was taking subways and cabs and I was in a lot of crowds. You know, I was at a concert at the Garden with 18,000 people. And then what's weird is I was at the Big East you know, that Wednesday and I was standing next to like Jay Wright, the Villanova coach and uh, Kevin Willard, Stephen Hall coach and Miles Powell, the biggest player of the year. Um, so I was with all these people 
And then, um, you know, I was really sort of like getting kind of nervous and geeked about geeked out about spending all this time at the garden. I mean, if the Big East tournament had gone on to its completion, I would have been there four or five days in a row at the garden with all these people. Um, and then I would have had to go to the NCAA tournament with more people. So, um, basically within about a week after that, you know, I started getting sick. My wife put me on Tylenol. You know, my fever was at about 101 with Tylenol. Um, and it was really this, this friggin' cough, man, that I, just this horrible cough I couldn't get rid of. Yep. That dry cough. Yeah. It's annoying for the people around you, you know, like everyone around you probably looks at you like you're crazy. And I actually continued to write and do interviews and write stories while I was sick. And I would, you know, I tape all my interviews and, uh, during the interviews when I was taping, I'd be coughing on the phone and, you know, I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was like kind of weird and gross for the people I was talking to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even if you're not ill and you cough in public, you can see the reactions. Everyone just dives for cover. Yeah. And this was like, you know, this was in late March, mid to late March. Like nobody was wearing masks yet. You know, there was no protocol on masks. Um, they were just starting to sort of, you know, figure out that you had to quarantine for a couple of weeks. So, you know, it turns out that I had it pretty early. And now the good news is like I've had it and, you know, I kind of hope I'm, I'm immune and I was able to visit my 92 year old dad last week. So, you know, that's all good. Oh, excellent. So, didn't, so nobody else in the family got it. It was just you. Well, that's the other weird thing, Sanj, is that we, my wife and I have both gotten two antibody tests and I tested positive both times and she tested negative both times. So we can't quite understand, you know, how she lived with me for while I was sick and, and didn't get, didn't get it. I mean, she's kind of, she was hoping she had antibodies and she doesn't. So maybe she's just really strong and somehow didn't get it or, you know, we're not quite sure. Or maybe she just wasn't trying hard enough. Uh, you know, Idris Elba's yeah. <laughs> wife <laughs> intentionally yeah. got it. She figured out a way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Well, you're, you're all better now. It sounds like. Yeah, I feel, I feel fine. And, um, you know, the good news is I'm sort of not walking around like in fear of getting it like everyone else. And I'm not really worried about it. Well, okay. We're, we're glad you made a, a comeback and, and you're back at it. Uh, but that brings me to a point. You're a sports writer, right? So yeah. what, what is the impact on sports writing and, and journalism? I, I mean, work is different for all of us. We're remote and we found ways to cope, but uh, I'm not publishing articles for the Times, for example. So, and people are cranking out, you know, they've gotten very, very creative. They've started cranking out content on all these different platforms uh, you know, TikTok has uh, gone crazy, but what's it done? What's this pandemic done to professional writers such as you and into the profession? Yeah, it's tough, Sanj. I mean, look, journalism was was in trouble before this. I mean, you know, new, the newspaper business certainly was in trouble. You know, the internet, that's a whole nother conversation, but the internet uh, contributed sort of to the decline of newspapers. And, you know, I have a lot of friends and colleagues who in the last few years have been furloughed or laid off, you know, the daily news pretty much, uh, fired its whole sports department, you know, a year or two ago, whenever that was, and they were down to like four sports writers and editors. And, um, you know, we see sports illustrated's been sold and, and kind of ravaged and, um, you know, so the sports writing industry in general has, ha has taken some hard knocks in the past few years. And then when this happened, um, you know, I know a friend of mine at the at the Post who who was uh, either laid off or furloughed, and some other people. 
because because you know when there aren't games and events to write about, you know you don't need as many writers. Um, so hopefully here in the next couple months over the summer, the NBA, Major League Baseball, and football will ramp back up. There'll be sports for people to watch and people to write about, and uh, you know there'll be you know some of those folks will get will get their jobs back. You know, for me, just personally, you know, I cover a lot of basketball on all levels, the NBA, college, recruiting. And so the, the good news for me in my industry is a lot of that stuff has still gone on. Like you still have college kids declaring for the NBA draft, college kids transferring from one school to another, you know, top high school prospects committing to college. So I, I wrote a couple of stories for the Times in April. Um, I've been busy for Forbes. I wrote a bunch of stories about the last dance, the, the Michael Jordan documentary. Um, so I've been able to, to be busy, but you know, we obviously need games to, to keep us all going. You know, in, in some of these other, uh, uh, fields, the pandemic has accelerated, uh, some of the, either the decline or has created new opportunities. Uh, look at zoom and how that's exploded, right. For example. And, yeah. um, and there's a report that says, I mean, a survey was done that said, uh, and, and, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but three quarters of the people um, who are currently working from home have no plans to resume their former life, which means, you know, four to five days back in the office. Uh, what what do you think in terms of new strategies for journalism that there might be? Does it, do you have any thoughts on where this field may be going? Well, I mean, look, th- those are questions that we are dealing with before this pandemic, um, you know, I mean, the good thing about sort of the internet is that, um, you know, the, the bad side of it is that newspapers gave their content away for free on the internet. And so people, you know, a lot of people, younger people, your kids, my kids, they don't read newspapers anymore. They read everything online. My kids are going to grow up, you know, really not reading newspapers. So unfortunately that has endangered the newspaper industry and and put a lot of papers and people out of business because people can get their content for free on the internet. Now, the the flip side to that is that um, there are more ways for people to report. I mean, it's almost like anyone can be a reporter or a photographer. Now, if you have a, you know, an iPhone and a Twitter account, you know, you can go out and, you know, you see Michael Jordan or Zion Williamson or, uh, you know, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal doing something, you can take video and post it. And, um, you know, you, you can get quotes from people's, uh, all these people have their own social media, Instagram, Twitter. So a lot of athletes are, you know, breaking their own news, reporting their own news on social media, which is also sort of cut into journalism. Um, but you know, in a way that's also democratized things to where, um, you know, if you if you have access to to people and can break news or can write a column with a take that uh, is unique, um, you can elevate your own platform and and sort of make a name for yourself in journalism. Right. Every, everyone's got their junior badge from the Daily Planet. Right. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, I feel it can be a little dangerous, but yes. Well, so you mentioned the last dance, right? And this is the kept people uh, occupied and, and in many cases enthralled uh, during this time. Yeah, um, it's, it's like reliving the soap opera. And for those of us who lived through it the first time, we know all, you know, a lot of the stuff that was going on. 
uh, certain things that that example of the uh, flu game, which you know turned out to be pizza food poisoning. You know, I, I didn't know that back then, and it was interesting to hear and see. And then the guy who delivered the pizza came out and corrected the story. So there's some really interesting things happening there. But what did you think of this um, uh, ten episode series as a as a whole? Yeah, I thought it was great. I actually know one of the guys, uh, Greg Winnick, who um, was one of the producers on it. And look, I mean, the main thing is, like you said, it, there was no sports here for the last two months. So this kept everyone enter- entertained. I think for a lot of younger people, like I, I deal with a lot of, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 year old, you know, high school and college kids who grew up on LeBron or LeBron and Kobe. They think those guys are the greatest. They didn't really know much about Michael Jordan. Whereas I think, you know, most guys our age and, you know, say if you're 40 and over, you tend to believe Michael Jordan was the GOAT. Um, And what I think it's one thing that's interesting is a lot of these younger kids have sort of realized, oh, this is what Michael was all about. I get a better picture of Michael and the Bulls. Um, And they're starting to reevaluate, you know, maybe Michael's the GOAT and not LeBron and not Kobe. I mean, let's face it, Michael went 6-0 and in NBA Finals. He never lost one. You know, he had Scottie Pippen for all six of them. Uh, LeBron has lost, lost six NBA finals. And I think Kobe lost two. So, you know, for guys like us, you know, I, Michael will always be the goat, um, for these younger guys, their, their perception has changed. I think another interesting thing, Sanj, is that, um, it's unclear, you know, Michael Jordan says he's donating all the proceeds from this to charity. I've been told by some people that he's gotten, you know, uh, seven or eight figures, you know, for agreeing to do this. And his production company worked with ESPN. So this isn't really a pure, true, um, objective documentary, you know, Michael and his production company had a lot of influence in it. And what you're seeing now in the last few days is Horace Grant, Scotty Pippen, and some of his teammates are, are really not happy with how they've been portrayed. I mean, Horace Grant has come out very upset that he was called the snitch. Uh, you know, basically Michael said that Horace was the source for Sam Smith's book, Jordan rules and, and, uh, you know, kind of threw him under the bus and Horace says, that's not true. You know, Scotty Pippen really wasn't portrayed so great at various times between the migraine and refusing to go into one of the games. So he's come out or he hasn't directly said it, but people close to him have said he's not happy with it. So I think you have a lot of people sort of, uh, you know, reacting to how they were portrayed in the doc. So in some cases it's, uh, reopened old wounds and and other cases it's probably created some new ones, right. Amongst those people. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, look, I mean, I think it was pretty clear in that thing that Michael Jordan, you know, was a, was a bit of a bully, right. I mean, uh, you know, emotionally, Steve Kerr. Yeah. Yeah. Scott, Scott Burrell, he, you know, made him kind of his whipping boy there. Um, and, you know, the guys in the dock are saying, look, he, he wasn't a nice guy. He was, he was a bully, but he was doing it to achieve greatness as a team. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people were touched by that moment. I think it was at the end of episode eight where Michael says, uh, look, you know, I'm, I was doing this to win. And, and if you weren't on board and you didn't want to win, then you could get off my team or, you know, words to that effect. Um, but it is interesting that any story is in the eye of the person who tells it and their perception. And this is obviously, you know, from Michael's perspective and 
So Scotty and Horace Grant's perspective and Phil Jackson and, and Jerry Krause is dead. Yeah. He's not here to defend himself. So, uh, you know, Jerry Krause put those teams together. He was the architect of it, but he was almost made out to be the, the villain. Uh, he was highly villainized. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and it is Jordan's story, right? I, I, so I read somewhere, somebody said, you know, nobody would care. And now you and I remember Horace Grant, but he probably wouldn't be widely remembered um, or at least not readily remembered unless it were for this, uh, you know, series. So it, it does come down to, you know, it's Jordan's story, maybe Jordan and Pippin's story, right? And Pippin didn't get a, a, he didn't look good in this one. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I mean, what's interesting, you know, one of the many, many interesting things is there were two different teams essentially that won two, three Pete's and Michael and Scotty are the only ones and Phil Jackson who were part of all six teams. And again, Jerry Krause, you know, uh, restructured the team for that second three-peat. I mean, Dennis Rodman effectively replaced Horace Grant. Steve Kerr effectively replaced, you know, John Paxson. So it's kind of amazing that they were able to do it with different teams. And so the supporting cast, um, you know, does deserve credit. But but so that supporting cast hit some big shots. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, Steve Kerr hit, hit big shots there. And, you know, I think uh, for all of Dennis Rodman's, you know, theatrics off the court and his, his stuff with um what's his uh girlfriend's name the uh oh, carmen electra carmen electra you know all that kind of stuff you know when it came time for the games to be played he was just a phenomenal rebounder defensive player and that there was a segment in one of those episodes where he talked about how he studied rebounding and how the ball came off the rim at different angles and he knew where to go where to position himself to get the rebound and he didn't need the ball on offense i mean that's for a Michael Jordan teammate, that's perfect. Yeah, exactly. So that's like a that's like an ultimate player <laughs> playing with you who doesn't need to throw it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And Adam's referring to my proclivity to um, uh, to have very long throws <laughs> and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I look at this and I and I look at the stories coming out of uh, you know Golden State saying, "Thank goodness we didn't sign on for this because they had an opportunity." Right. Uh, Steph Curry also uh, supported that view that he's glad that they didn't sign up for it. I, I heard that there are three follow on series that are like this, uh, that are either in production or going to start now because of the success of it. Uh, is this going to become the norm now? This kind of like, you know, but but not 20 years later, but during, you know, that kind of aggrandizement. Uh, usually NFL films does it at the end of the year. Right. But now is it just going to be let's follow these guys around and, and let's just uh, add the drama. Yeah. I mean, I think what's really unique about this situation is that this film, you know, they, they got permission to follow Michael and the bulls for that season in 97, 98. And then all the video sat around for, you know, 20 years and um, you know, nothing was done with it. And so now the documentary is coming out 22 years later, which, you know, again, has, has given a younger generations a perspective on it. Um, you know, I, I know that just, and this is not what you're referring to, but coming up in the next few weeks on ESPN, they're doing 30 for thirties on Lance Armstrong is coming out the, the next two Sundays. Then there's one on Bruce Lee. And then there's one on Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire and the, the steroid fueled home run chase in 98. So I don't, you know, none of those are going to do as well as the Jordan doc, which averaged 5.6 million viewers, you know, for 10 episodes. I mean, that's a lot of people. 
Um, I, I'm not sure which ones you've heard about. I mean, I know people obviously are interested in the Kobe documentary. Um, I, I'm sure there have been cameras following LeBron around. You know, I'm not sure how many people you could do a 10 part documentary on. I mean, you know, Muhammad Ali for sure. But the the number of people who would justify a, a 10 or even a five part you know, documentary series is, is pretty rare. So this is this was really lightning in a bottle. There was a place in time. Yeah, and, and the storyline is so compelling, right? Because before the season starts, you have the general manager of the team, Jerry Krause, saying, even if they go 82 and 0, uh, this is the coach's last year and we're effectively breaking up the team. Yeah. You know, even a team that had won five NBA championships and then, you know, they win it. And uh, you had the conversations there at the end about Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, calls up Phil Jackson and says, hey, do you want to come back for one more year? You know, we're still going to rebuild the team, but you could coach it. Phil Jackson says no. Michael says, oh, we would have all signed one-year contracts to come back and try to win a seventh title. Had Phil you know, signed. Right. Yeah, he, he assumes, you know, Phil would have come back. The, the big obstacle there was obviously Pippen, who, you know, agreed to a seven-year, $18 million contract that, you know, for whatever reasons, Reinsdorf wouldn't renegotiate. So, you know, Scotty was looking to get paid, and I, and I think he ended up getting like a five-year, $67 million contract in his next contract. So, you know, who knows what would have happened if they, if they could have won another title. You know, that next year, as you'll remember, signs 98-99 was the lockout season. The Spurs, the Spurs beat, won it, yeah. Beat the Knicks in the final. Um, and you know, they only had to play 50 games. So Michael Wilbon, I saw arguing on ESPN that that would have helped the bulls, right? Cause there were fewer games. They were an older team. They only had to play 50 games, but they also didn't start that season until February. So the season was condensed. They had to play a lot of back to backs and three nights in a row. That would have been hard. Who knows how that would have played out. Right. Well, so pre present day. So NBA, um, at the, at the time of, um, you know, when I was putting together the, uh, the topics for this, well, uh, I think that there was an, uh, an evaluation happening for Vegas or Orlando. I don't know if that, uh, ended and, uh, what they're talking about, if they're just focused on next season, what's the latest on this? You're probably far more attuned. So what are they saying? Yeah, I did actually a story today for, uh, Forbes that it sounds like it's going to be in Orlando. I mean, first of all, you know, Woj, Adrian Wojnarowski, who's the, you know, premier NBA reporter in the country, uh, reported that, you know, on June 1st, there should be some guidelines from the NBA on players coming back and starting to work out. And then Danny Green, who's from Long Island and plays for the Lakers, um, said in an interview on ESPN today that they're leaning towards playing in Orlando at Walt Disney World, you know, which makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of synthesis and overlap between ESPN and ABC and, and Walt Disney. So there'll basically be, you know, it sounds like sort of a, a bubble situation where the players are living in Orlando, playing games there. The games would be on TV with no fans. Um, and then, you know, really the interesting thing is, you know, how, how is the playoff structure going to work? Um, you know, will they, will they have a play in playoff series for the seventh and eighth seeds, you know, maybe teams six through 11 do a one game elimination playoff for the seventh and eighth seeds. 
And then really interesting is like, hey, if you're the Nets, Brooklyn Nets are the seventh seed right now in the East, Sanj. Does that open the chance of Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving coming back to play for the Nets? And if they just go straight to a playoff, if somehow the Warriors, who have the worst record in the league, have a chance to make the playoffs, do Steph Curry and Klay Thompson come back and play? So, you know, it could be fun with storylines like that. Does it um, does it all fall apart, though? If uh, I mean, I, I would guess that um, the league can't mandate people participating unless, uh, you know, unless all the guidelines allow for everybody to have kind of like whatever kind of interaction that, that they uh, want to have. So I, I, would players be able to hold this up somehow or would they be obligated to play? Oh, well, it, I think it has to be, you know, uh, agreed upon, you know, with the Players Association. You know, obviously in baseball, there's a whole, you know, there's basically a fight going on between the owners and the Players Association about how the money is going to be divided. And, you know, when you don't have fans, you don't have a gate revenue, you don't have concession revenue, um, you know, you don't have parking revenue. So there's a lot less revenue to be divided in baseball. Um, and that's what they're fighting about there. My understanding is that in baseball, um, there has to, the Players Association um, has to come to an agreement um, with the owners and, and they're fighting over money. In the NBA, I'm not quite as clear on that. The season has already begun in the NBA and it's just a matter of continuing it. Whereas in baseball, the season hasn't started yet. Um, but I think Adam Silver is, you know, and his team are going to, make the final decisions on, you know, when the season starts, where it starts. And then obviously, you know, the other big issue is, is testing and, and keeping these guys safe. Like, you know, in baseball, they're having to trying to have rules. Like you can't spit. And, the, you know, if a guy's leading off first, the first baseman shouldn't get too close to the, the runner. You know I mean? That's not baseball. That's, that's kind of a, a bastardization of baseball. And in the NBA, like, even if these guys are, living in Orlando, living in hotels or whatever, they're still going to be at risk of getting it. And, um, you know, what happens if LeBron James tests positive or, you know, Russell Westbrook tests positive, uh, you know, what does that mean for the rest of the team? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of questions that they're going to sort of have to play by ear as it goes along. Right. So, so the league is not going to do this by fiat anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think the NBA players, it's different in baseball and basketball from, from everything I've seen, the NBA players, you know, want to get back and play. LeBron has said he wants to get back and play. You know, again, their season started. They want to crown a champion, even if they have some, even if they just have to go straight to the playoffs, not finish the regular season, they want to crown a champion. And then it'll lead into next season. Right. Sanj. And like, let's say the playoffs start in July and don't end until whatever early, mid August. You know, then maybe you don't start the next NBA season until December. Um, in in baseball, it's uh, you know you've already had players come out and sort of grouse about you know, hey, I'm not going to play for a reduced salary. It's not worth it for me to only make three million dollars when I should be making six million. And that that in turn is obviously you know rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. There's there's 36 million unemployed people in this country. People are dying. And a lot of people don't want to hear that, you know, from the baseball players. I'm now thinking, yeah, so you talked about baseball and them avoiding contact, not getting too close at first base. If you can't touch and you have to keep your distance, yeah. how do you yeah. play football? Yeah. Are they just going to yeah. scrap yeah. it for now? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I saw an NFL player on TV today saying, you know, this is a 
disease. This is a contact disease that you obtain, you know, from contact with other people. And football is a contact sport. Um, you know, it's it's a great question. Like I heard somebody say, you know, take quarterbacks for example. The you know, the NFL team or college team. So you have three quarterbacks in, the, in a quarterback meeting with the quarterback coach or the offensive coordinator, and one of those people gets it. One of the quarterback quarterbacks gets COVID. You know, then all of a sudden, all three of your quarterbacks maybe have it. Um, and how is that going to play out? So, you know, look, these are great questions. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of money at stake. I think college football is something like a four billion dollar industry. Obviously, the NFL is is a huge financial um, behemoth in this country. Obviously, you know, President Trump, who has his own interests at stake, wants the NFL to start uh, in September. To, to so, so there's the appearance of things, you know, returning to normal. And uh, a lot of people want to be able to watch football. Now, it sounds like the college and the NFL are both going to be played without fans, which is going to be weird watching games you know, with no noise. And I saw Bob Costas and, um, so, you know, some of the other, uh, Brian Gumble, maybe some of these guys talking about how you might have to pipe in crowd noise or, or, or fan noise. Um, and again, it'll, it'll come down, to, it'll come down to testing. Like, you know, what happens if a guy, uh, you know, the quarterback on the Notre Dame or Michigan gets it or a lineman gets, I mean, football teams, you know, don't forget, or like, you know, there's like a hundred people involved. You got the trainers and the coaches and the support staff. So, and even on the I line think, of scrimmage, you've got like, you know, eight people all yeah. within six feet. That makes it really yeah. difficult. Yeah. And they're all breathing all, all over each other and sweating and tackling and touching each other. And in, in basketball, there's a lot of contact and they're, they're breathing and sweating all each, all over each other. So, um, I think this is just going to have to be very fluid. And, you know, these are professional leagues where they're, they have the ability to, to take people's temperature all the time and test them all the time, where the average person, you know, you and I walking down the street don't have uh, that kind of ability. So I think we're just going to have to wait and see. But, uh, you know, it's obviously important for the country to, to get sports back. Like, you know, my dad is 92. He's a big Yankees fan and he has got nothing to do right now. And he, he wants to watch the Yankees. So I, I hope. I hope baseball comes back, you know, for people like him. The Olympics are postponed until next year. So yep. what is the next, is the NBA going to be the Petri dish for this as uh, you know, for what the NFL will do or what is the next big sporting event? Will it be the NBA finals or do you think it's something else? Yeah, I think basically that's right. The NBA, I mean, they have had, I see, you know, some NASCAR races and some, the Bundesliga uh, in Europe came back and they've done some WWE events. You know, all without fans. But yes, I, I think the NBA is going to be kind of the Petri dish guinea pig that's going to come back. We'll see how that goes. You know, then the NFL is going to, college football and the NFL are going to have to come back in late August, early September. Um, and that's all going to spill into, like we said before, maybe the next NBA season doesn't start until December. Maybe the college basketball season doesn't come until January. And also, let's not forget, Sanj, this this varies from state to state and region to region. I mean, we're here in New York and New Jersey, which has been hit harder than anywhere else in the world, pretty much, or certainly in the country, um, by this pandemic. And, you know, the situation in 
you know, Lincoln, Nebraska and Ann Arbor, Michigan, and, uh, in other places is, is not as bad and is different. So it's going to be weird if some states reopen and some professional teams or college teams are able to train and practice and other places aren't like, you know, just for example, like in the, you know, in the big East and basketball, like, you know, St. John's and Seton Hall may not open in the fall, but, uh, you know, Creighton and Xavier, which are in the Midwest are also in the big East. They're going to open. So what does that mean for league play? Maybe only some of the teams in the league play games. Um, I think there's a lot of, a lot of questions about it. Yeah. I'm very interested in, um, eligibility. So obviously, uh, with high school eligibility, there's nothing you can do because when you graduate, you graduate. Right. Um, but, uh, for, uh, for college, will they extend? Will colleges then carry over that eligibility? Well, they did rule the NCAA did rule that spring athletes, um, you know, baseball, softball, the other spring sports can have an extra year of eligibility, you know, next spring. So, um, Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, and there was some talk about <clears throat> they should do that for basketball too, because all the guys who, you know, missed the NCAA tournament never got a chance to play in it. But, you know, though the basketball season was basically completed uh, in March, it was just the NCAA tournament. So they decided to give spring sports um, athletes an extra year of eligibility next year. But, but high schools, you mentioned high schools, you know, that's a whole nother question. I cover a lot of you know, high-level high school basketball recruiting and stuff. And, you know, colleges and, and professional teams, they have the staff and the, the personnel, the ability to, like we said, measure people's temperatures and test them. You know, if you're some high school basketball coach or AD, you know, you don't have the ability to do all that. You don't have facilities to keep people separated. So, you know, I just can't imagine how high school sports, especially in places like New York and New Jersey, are going to have you know, football and stuff in the fall. I don't, I don't see how that's going to work. Yeah. It, it absolutely is the lost year for, for high school kids. Um, you know, uh, graduations are being called off proms, all these kinds of things are happening. And, uh, so they're feeling it. We know that personally too. So some colleges already announcing for the fall and others are still making up their minds. There's no way to have to this, is there? I mean, let, let's say that, uh, folks are remote they're going to have to cancel unless everybody's in nobody's in. Well, look, I I've seen some schools like Notre Dame, for example, announced they're going to start early with in-person classes on August 10th. They're going to cancel their October break and then let everyone go at Thanksgiving for the semester. So they're going to start early end early, cancel a break with the hopes that, you know, people won't go home and, and bring the virus back from, the October break and the Thanksgiving break, but then all those people are going to go home and come back in January. So, you know, we've all heard maybe there's going to be a huge spike uh, again in the winter. And, you know, maybe that is part of that. Uh, I think South Carolina said they're going to start like August 20th and do something similar. So I think, you know, colleges are going to be faced with these uh, permutations of starting earlier and ending before Thanksgiving. I think both, I think the Cal State system has said they're not going to have any in-person classes in the fall. And I, and I think the UC system, which is, you know, UCLA and Berkeley, uh, people expect them to follow suit 
you know, if that happens, that means how can you have football at UCLA and, and football at Cal Berkeley? Or, I don't even know if they have a team, but I think they do, but UCLA does. Uh, you know, if there, if there are no students on campus, what does that mean for your for your student athletes? And, you know, just for the average person, like you and I know people who are going to be sending their kids to college in the fall as freshmen or whatever, you know, are you going to pay 20 grand or 50 grand, whatever the tuition is, to take online classes? Or are you just going to keep the kid at home? And Oh, no, and there are going to be a lot of gap years. The, yeah. I, I was uh, um, at a, um, a, a, a socially responsible distanced function where um, folks were saying there's absolutely no way in hell are they going to spend fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars for online learning. That's not what they right. signed up for. Absolutely. Right, right. But um, look, again, there's a lot of money at stake, especially in college football. You know, college football helps pay for all the other college sports, basketball, softball, baseball, tennis, golf. So if there's no college football or if the revenue is down in college football, that's going to have a spillover effect on, on all the other sports. It's a new world, new rules. And uh, uh, as you mentioned, I think the, the, the best way that you described it was that it's going to be fluid and uh, we're just going to have to, you know, build this up block by block. You know, the Bundesliga, you mentioned that. You know, I saw some highlights. I'm not a big soccer guy, I'll confess. Um, I mean, they played the games. There were no fans. What's funny is they show the South Korean League baseball games and they have, you know, uh, fake fan faces, or, you know, faces of, of fans in the stands. Um, or I think in one place they had like blow up sex dolls, <laughs> which, which was pretty funny. Um, so it's going to be different. We know, you know, a big part of any live sporting event, as we all know, and especially, you know, people who attend events and cover them like me, the crowd is a huge factor in games that, you know, professional games, college games. If you're the visiting team, you want to silence the home crowd. You want to shut them up. If you're the home team, you want to ride off the, the buzz that you're getting for the fans. And now you're going to have games played, you know, without fans. I don't, it's going to be unique. Um, and I think, you know, another thing is like, like I'm a big tennis guy. And, you know, we don't know if the U.S. Open is going to happen now. They're going to decide in June. But theoretically, the U.S. Open would happen in September. The French Open has been pushed to September and October. So what you could have is just a plethora of, you know, a ton of events happening in a condensed space in the fall. You know, you could have the, the U.S. Open, the, the French Open, the, the World Series, um, you know, the a lot of different of the, the masters, I believe was pushed to November, um, in golf. So you could have like sort of a two or three month span there in October, November, December, January, we just have a ton of big events happening and that's nothing be, to overload. Yeah. And that could be pretty cool. Like just in tennis, you could have three grand slams within like, you know, whatever that is four months from the U S open in September to the Australian open in January you know, you could have three major, you know, tennis tournaments. Well, that, that actually raises, uh, I think my final question to you is have people permanently become disinterested? Are we at risk if, if that many things happen all at once and is that the world we're about to enter or does it well, make more sense to stagger it a little bit? Uh, look, Sanj, I'll just say, I hope that's a problem that we end up having. <laughs> I mean, because we don't have any sports right now. So I think people would sign up in a heartbeat to have, you know, too much, right? The, the Masters and the U.S. Open and 
the World Series all happening, you know, within a month. I think people would love that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I again, I just uh, it, it's a very tough situation because, uh, you know, uh, it's like the country at large. There, there's economic issues and people need to get back to work. But on the other hand, you know, you have to keep people safe and you don't want this thing to get worse. So it's a very fine line that uh, these commissioners and, and university presidents have to make these decisions, you know. Well, we will we will see how this uh, unfolds. Um, we're hoping the NBA comes back first. We hope that they can work out their agreements so that uh, I think they cleared out Disney uh, anyway, so that logistically it should be manageable. But uh, let's see how that goes. And maybe we'll have you back and, and talk about when things start to open up again. There's something meaningful in terms of scores to talk about. So let's see. Sounds good, Sash. Thanks, and good luck with the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Adam Zagoria, writer for The New York Times, for Forbes, and for Zag's blog. He's uh, a great sports writer and was a uh, and continues to be a teammate of mine on some recent Ultimate Frisbee teams. Adam, thank you once again. Thanks, Sash. Take care, buddy. Please visit jubitate.com for links and source material for this podcast. We welcome listener feedback and ideas for future shows. If you are a podcast host and would like to be cross-linked to your podcast, please email info at jubitate.com. Until next time, when we once again traverse the world searching for sanity.